This morning we're going to be in Luke 3 and we are going to focus on Jesus' baptism. The baptism of Jesus and the question would be why on earth would Jesus be baptized? It's a question worth asking. We take it for granted because we read the account and we know he was baptized. But, but why on earth would Jesus be baptized? Even more specifically, why would he be baptized by John? Why would he undergo the baptism of John? It's an important question because when you get into answering it, it becomes rather profound and it becomes significant. And it's the very sort of thing that, that, that worship is fueled by. When we start digging a little and we start answering the question, why would Jesus be baptized? We see him even perhaps as greater than we saw him before in what he did and what he did even on our behalf. And so this morning what we'll do is we'll be able to identify three reasons for his baptism, uh, focusing really on one in particular, but we'll look at three reasons for his baptism and then we'll even be able to have the service come to a high point at the end because today we are celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so I trust all of this will be further impressing us with Christ and showing us his significance and the great love that he loved us with. And then we're ready to respond in remembering his finished work, even by eating bread and by drinking wine, as he said. And so have that in the back of your mind, if not in the front of your mind, where we're headed this morning. The first reason uh, would be uh, for his baptism would be that it, was, it, it provided an occasion for divine affirmation. It was an occasion for divine affirmation, particularly, in particular, the affirmation of his father and the affirmation even by the power of, in the power of the Spirit. Okay, so this is the occasion of, of public divine affirmation. And while John was affirmed by God because he was given the word of God, it's not even in comparison here when we read, look at verse 21 where it says, And now, when all the people were baptized, that would be John's baptism, and they were baptized in droves. We learned about that in verse 7. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open. So please at least notice there's, there's a marked difference all the people were baptized, and, and that seems significant because of what John was preaching, and they're identifying with that. But now, unlike all of those other people, when Jesus is baptized, here he is praying, and the heavens are opened. So it's radically different. It's extraordinary, his baptism. And then in verse 22, and the Holy Spirit, that makes it radically different too. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, so visible. Uh, uh, the other gospel account in Matthew has John seeing this as well. So it's not just something that Jesus is experiencing. This is public. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. 22 then says, And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, and so it is the voice of the Father, because he says, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. John the Baptist was affirmed by God by being given the word of God, but, but we're talking about a totally different category here. Jesus is affirmed, clearly the Spirit is descending uh, like a dove, the heavens are rent open, and the Father is speaking and he's not only speaking in affirmation, he says, my son, not only that, my son in whom I am well pleased. When Jesus is baptized, it gives a perfect opportunity for us to see God affirming 
this launching, this public ministry of Jesus, and we see it in the Father, we see it in the Son, and certainly, or excuse me, in the Spirit, and we certainly see it in the actions of the Son. So it's meant to stand out to us, it's meant to be extraordinary, and it certainly it is. It tells us he's greater than John. I mean, John himself said, he's greater than me, I can't even untie his shoes, so to speak, in our language. Well, that, that was a tremendous, that was a gross understatement in one sense because, yeah, yeah, that's right, you're not worthy of that because we're talking about the one who God the Father himself claims as his own, affirmed by the sending of his Spirit. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. It tells us so much. It tells us even more than that. It tells us this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. The beginning of Jesus' public ministry we know is indicated here because the Spirit is descending. It wasn't that he didn't have the Spirit. It wasn't that, that somehow he was lacking. But because God is going to strategically move in a unique and extraordinary way through the public ministry of Jesus, he has it visibly shown that the Spirit is descending. To use language that's used elsewhere, the Spirit is anointing him. Okay, There's that public blessing because he has a unique duty. Just like a king has a unique duty, Jesus has a unique duty. And when the Spirit comes down, it gives opportunity for that to be shown publicly. And verse 23 does say, by the way, that he began his ministry. I drew lines between verse 22. The Holy Spirit descended in 23. He began his ministry. It's, it's intentional. There's meant to be a mental connection that's there. Unique Holy Spirit accompaniment that marks his unique earthly ministry. Just listen and you could perhaps jot down Acts chapter 10 and what Luke says about this very matter in Acts 10. Remember, there's Luke volume 1 and Luke volume 2 because Luke and Acts actually go together as, as one work. So later on, Luke commenting on this says this. This is Acts chapter 10, verse 37. After the baptism that John proclaimed, verse 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So this is Holy Spirit power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So it's, it's, it's meant for emphasis. The Holy Spirit is with him. God is with him to do these special tasks while he's here on earth. It also tells us that Jesus is more than a prophet. Many thought he was a prophet. Some even say he's a prophet today. But it doesn't say he's a prophet because the voice from heaven says, what? You are my beloved son. You're my special beloved son. Very unique. We won't take the time to go to all of these passages, but we see throughout Luke this emphasis on Jesus is the Son of God. Son of God. Son of God. He's not just a prophet. He's not in the same category as John the Baptist. He's the very one who is the Son of God. Even back when we learned about the virgin birth, Luke one thirty five, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and, the, and then the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Luke 4, 3, tempted by the devil. If you are the Son of God, Luke 4, 41, if you are the Son of God, or excuse me, 4, 9, in 4, 41, the demons came out after he cast the demons out in, in their response to Jesus because he could cast them out of the demon-possessed. You are the Son of God. Unique, extraordinary kind of ministry. Luke twenty two seventy. 
So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Or the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke 9, 35. The voice comes out of the cloud and says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And so we're going to hear that throughout. We've heard it throughout Luke. And here's a special time at his baptism for God to publicly affirm and announce the significance of the one who's about ready to start his ministry. That's a reason for Jesus' baptism, to mark the beginning of this special, unique, extraordinary work. And there's one more important aspect to this public launching. Listen to this. And then we'll look at a different text. Jesus' baptism with the voice of the Father coming or being heard and the dove descending like a dove or or the Spirit descending like a dove, all three members of the triune God, marks the unfolding, the, the execution, the carrying out, get this, of the perfect plan and purpose of the triune God to redeem sinners that He, the triune God, came up with in eternity past. Bend your mind a little bit and try to get your mind around that one. There was a time when the triune God counseled with Himself and determined, planned, purposed to redeem sinners like you and like me. And it was before, the Bible says, the foundation of the world. And in Jesus' baptism, we see it becoming an, an actuality. We, we see it unfolding. We, we see the eternal, if you will, to use theological language, the eternal decree of God, planned by God in eternity past, in this amazing, amazing thing. It's actually coming to reality. It's now actually entering into time and space history at the baptism of Jesus because it's going to be carried out in the Son by the power of the Spirit according to the will of the Father. This is Ephesians 1. Okay, I'm trying to to use some Ephesians 1 language. I'd like you to turn to Ephesians 1 and and know that the theological interpretation, if you will, the, the theological background, the underpinnings, the groundwork for what we see at the beginning of Jesus' ministry with the with the triune God together is what the triune God has been waiting to do. Even from eternity past. And and you should you should be excited about that. We're, we're, the, we're the benefactors. This is, this is for us. Oh, sure, it's ultimately for His glory because He's God and we're not. But this is an amazing, amazing reality that when Jesus is baptized, they're all there together affirming the beginning of what He's going to do. This isn't just a plan that they came up with the week before. This isn't just something they came up with when they decided to do virgin birth. I mean, this isn't something they came up with in the Old Testament. This is before. For time begins in eternity past something that I know you can't understand because you don't have a point of reference and neither do I. The only point of reference we do have is time. And this is before time. And you go, what? That's what we're supposed to do. What? And we're supposed to see the baptism of Jesus because we're going to see the ministry of Jesus as extraordinary. It's, 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 it's what the triune God has been waiting for. Not to mention what 
a lost humanity has been waiting for. This is exciting stuff. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll look at verses 3 to roughly through verse 11. We're going to read all of those verses, but I'll try to put a particular emphasis on some of this kind of decree language, plan language. But do notice in in chapter 1 of Ephesians, you do have uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even if we don't cover all of the verses, all three members are involved in this eternal plan that we're seeing come to fruition in Jesus' launch of ministry. It says in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, verse 5 says, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. How about this? According to the purpose of his will. That is his decree. That is his will that was designed before the foundation of the world. Verse 6 says, to the praise of his glorious grace. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. And the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Which he lavished. He poured out richly upon us in all wisdom and insight. How about wisdom that goes back to the throne room of God in eternity past. According to his divine decree. It's that kind of wisdom. Verse 9. Making known to us. The mystery of his will, his decree, his ordained plan according to his purpose. I love the end of verse 9, which he set forth in Christ. That's what we're seeing at the baptism and beyond. Verse 10, as a plan, as a purpose, something he's ordained for the fullness of time. Oh, we're seeing the fullness of time now uh, uh, beginning to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11 says, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. How? According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's the, that's the theological background and theological interpretation of why it's such an exciting thing to have Jesus beginning his ministry and why you've got all three members there. The three members are there now ready to carry out what they've been planning to do for a long, 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 long time. Redemption. Redemption. It's crucial that it be carried out in real time and real space. And what we see happening in Luke 3 is the beginning of the outworking of that divine purpose. Sometimes this is what theologians call the covenant of redemption, the pact, the agreement that the triune God came up with in eternity past. And we, as we study Luke 3, with the beginning of his public ministry, are watching it unfold. I want you to be excited about that. I want you to be excited about that. Now let's move to a second reason for Jesus' baptism. And I guess in a sense it's not a reason. It's the reason that's not a reason, which sounds unreasonable. Uh, (laughs) Let's just make sure we understand this. Jesus is baptized not because he needs to be. Okay? Another reason is a non-reason. 
Jesus isn't baptized because he needs to be. He isn't baptized uh, under the baptism of John because he needs to be baptized in and of himself. Okay? Why do I say that? I say that because John's baptism is a baptism, anybody remember without looking? A baptism of repentance. Go ahead and look now at verse 3 of chapter 3. John 3, or excuse me, Luke 3, 3 says, And he went into all the region, this is John, around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, hopefully at this time of year, you're thinking like oil and water and you're, you're going, what? Jesus is baptized by John and that, that should cause the effect in your mind as you're reading through. You get to go, what? You want to do that with me? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's not right. I mean, something's out of place. Something's out of order. Why, why would this be? And why am I even saying that? Because, because repentance means essentially you have to change your mind about something. You've been wrong. Jesus doesn't need to change his mind about anything. He's the son of God. And not only that, for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus doesn't need to be forgiven of anything. You never, ever, ever would ever need to be forgiven because he hasn't sinned. Sin is a violation of God's law. Sin is, sin is not treating God the way he's been asked to be treated by his creatures. This doesn't apply to Jesus. If, if for sure, even in our text, it doesn't apply to Jesus because what, what does the Father say to the Son from heaven? Not only the sending the Spirit upon him, that's a big deal, but then he says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. It would make absolutely no sense for Jesus to be baptized the baptism, by the baptism of John for repentance and the forgiveness of sins for himself. And that becomes important. In case you need more passages to think this through. Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 3.18, Jesus is called the righteous, the lawkeeper. Doesn't need to repent, doesn't need to be forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5.21, him who knew no sin. It's no wonder that John the Baptist says what he says. He does one of these, huh? Not really, but that's what it means in Greek. Um, <laughs> not really. <laughs> Matthew 3.14 says, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And, and do you come to me? Huh? This doesn't make sense. Jesus, you don't need to be baptized because you don't have any sin to be forgiven for. This doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense. At least for him to be baptized for anything that he had done related to forgiveness of sins or repentance. But there's something more to it. And now we come to a third reason, which is where we're going to emphasize some things here. A third reason Jesus is baptized, not only to give public uh, affirmation, not only because he didn't need to be, which is the non-reason, but he also is baptized because his baptism... And use a theological word. Is that okay in church? Um, hello, it's church. We talk about God. It's not the Better Business Bureau. Um, anyway, it just seems funny. I have to apologize for using a God word in church. Uh, what has this world come to? Anyway, <laughs> Jesus is baptized because his baptism is vicarious. 
It is vicarious. And if you don't like the word vicarious, you can use the word substitutional or substitutionary. And if you don't like substitutional or substitutionary, you can use the statement in our place. He does what he does in our place, in place of sinners, because he's not one. We use vicarious, though, outside of theology, right? Uh, if, if you have a friend who travels the world and they're going to see all these great places and you can't and you say, you know what, I just want to live vicariously through you. I can't experience all these things, but you are. And so I want to experience it. I want you to experience it in my place. And when we talk about Christianity, Christianity at the very basic core level, we're talking about Jesus being our representative. Okay? He is our, coming from vicarious, he is our vicar. He does it in our place, our substitute. That's why the Bible uses for so many times in relationship to the work of Christ. And what we will see is Jesus is baptized, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, not because he himself needed either, but because he's representing sinners. He's representing us because he loves us. And he came here not for himself, but he came here ultimately for us. Now, I'm going to have you look at Matthew 3.15 with me, if you would, to see this. We'll put both passages together to see the, the, the fullness of things. So if you turn to Matthew 3.15, then we'll come back for the genealogy. But as you're turning to Matthew 3 in, in Matthew's account, maybe this will help. So far, the emphasis has been in the baptism, He's my Son! Okay, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the divine Son, deity. It's really important that He is that. But it's important that He's not only the divine Son, it's important that Jesus is also a human. It's important that He's also, and Luke is going to go here in time, he's all, it's also important that He is the Son of Adam. Because as Adam drove the car into the ditch and led to condemnation spiritually, Christ does everything right and leads all who would ever believe in him into righteousness, bringing salvation. And so now the emphasis is going to shift from his deity, although that never stops being important, to his humanity, to his humanness, to his Adamness, if you will, because he ends up being our representative. Look what it says in Matthew 3.15 says, but Jesus answered him. This is when John is having a panic attack and says, you know, um, uh, mm, uh, 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 this doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, will not compute, will not compute, will not compute. Why would I baptize you? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us. And here's really the, the, the un underscored statement to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. If you really want the, the, the actual explicit textual reason for Jesus being baptized, there, there you go. Matthew provides the answer. Jesus is baptized, a baptism of repentance, though he didn't need to repent, for the forgiveness of sins, and he never sinned. Why? Matthew's account tells us to fulfill all righteousness. It's for a purpose. It's for a reason. Now, at this point in time, a lot of us are going, yeah, that's right. I have no idea what it means, but it's right. Preach it, pastor. 
to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Righteousness has to do with God's law, okay? If you are righteous, you're a law keeper. Let's boil down God's law the way Jesus boiled it down. If you really want to cut to the chase, to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that perfectly, you're righteous. You're righteous. If you're unrighteous, that means you're a lawbreaker. You don't love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, not to mention loving your neighbor as yourself. You're unrighteous. It has to do with the law. God has a standard. God has a law. Treat me like I'm God, in other words, I like to summarize it as. Jesus says, I'm going to identify with lawbreakers. I'm going to take their position, even though I'm not a lawbreaker. The father's just said, he's pleased with me. But I'm going to step in and I'm going to take the place of lawbreakers. Why? To fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill the demands of the divine law. I'm going to do this in, in, in their place. That's what's happening here. And by the way, if you, if you just think we just moved into the deep end of the pool, fine. But in one sense, these are just basic Christian realities, okay? We're lawbreakers. Therefore, as we stand before God in His court, we're in a lot of trouble, okay? Worthy of condemnation. What are we going to do? We can't reverse it. We can't undo it. It all started back with great, 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 great grandfather Adam who led the human race into sin. We need righteousness. We need a different representative. And Jesus did what he did to fulfill all righteousness. That's exciting. That's tremendously exciting. That's crucially exciting. That's the reason behind all of this, ultimately. True or false? You have to be righteous to go to heaven. You're going, eh, you know. Let me rephrase it. To go to heaven, you have to have perfect righteousness. The answer to that is true. In order to go to heaven, you have to have perfect righteousness. If you think you're going to heaven without perfect righteousness, you're not going. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be rude. But God doesn't change the law. You know, I used to be here, but you know, you guys really blew it in Adam, so I'll just lower it. He doesn't do that, nor does he make it harder. It's always been, love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do that, everything will be fine. The problem is, it's not fine. It's not fine at all. It's never been fine since Adam, our representative, led us into sin and condemnation. But for you to think that somehow God is going to say, hey, let, let bygones be bygones. I'll just forget about it. He's a corrupt judge. There will be a cosmic rebellion in heaven and the angels will stop saying, holy, holy, holy. Because he wouldn't be. So what God does is maintains his law on... This is, this is Romans 3, Romans 4 kind of talk, if you need to go somewhere to think it through later. He maintains his perfect law, and he sends his son to fulfill that law, to fulfill all, what is it? Righteousness. 
so that he could be our savior, so that he could, he could do everything he does in our place. Paul, the apostle Paul knew that the Christianity would stand or fall based upon righteousness. I know that he knew this because he said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, and to be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, Philippians 3, 9. He's thrilled beyond measure because Paul knows he needs righteousness and he has righteousness. Where did it come from? Not inside of himself. He got righteousness from the outside. It comes from God and it's Christ's righteousness. And Christ's righteousness is given to all who believe, who trust. He says, by faith. And you say, you're, 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 you're finding a lot in baptism. Yeah. Yeah. But Matthew records correctly the words of Jesus who says, I'll be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. That's awesome. That's awesomely good. Let's make up some words. <laughs> this is fantastic. This is wonderful. And, and, and this is so important to even think in the term, in, in, right, in a right perspective. You're going to read your Bible, in, in a sense, in one of two ways. You're going to read your Bible and say, oh yes, Jesus was baptized, and that's a good thing to do, and so I should do a good thing too. And so the reason the Bible records Jesus being baptized is so he could show us how to do it. Now, I, don't get me wrong, he shows us how to do right things. But at that point, I'm so missing the point. I'm so missing the point. He gives an interpretation for why he does what he does. And it wasn't to show us the way. It was to fulfill all righteousness. So that now by faith in Christ and his finished work, which is apparently beginning even here. His righteousness can become your righteousness. So that God can then look at you and say, you're righteous, knowing full well that you're not. And this is that biblical truth of Romans 3 and 4 called justification. God declares you righteous even though you're not. How could he do that? Because there is a righteousness that comes from outside of you. It comes from his son in whom he is well pleased. That is credited to you in your spiritual bank account so God can declare you righteous. See, here's how it goes. We're in the red when it comes to accounting. Spiritually, you are so in the red is not even funny, right? Psalm 14, Romans chapter 3, and Jesus is so in the black, it's not even funny, <laughs> okay? He's our representative. He is, he's the vicarious one who does all that he does, even with his baptism, so that we can have all righteousness fulfilled, so that by faith we can have his righteousness, and then we know that God accepts us. Is this relevant, or is this just a theology class? I'm telling you, it's so relevant, it's not even funny. Because you can leave here today with hope, with confidence. Because Jesus didn't say, I'm going to do this to show them how to fulfill all righteousness. <laughs> Dude, you know? Now, in my self-righteousness, that's what I want. I want to read the Bible that way. He doesn't do that. John baptized me to fulfill all righteousness. Never sinned a day in my life. 
I'm going to represent sinners. And I'm going to do the right thing. See, because through John, God says, repent. Repent. And the way to show your repentance is to be baptized. And you're showing that you know you're a sinner and you need to be forgiven. And so God, through his prophet John, is telling people they must repent. It's an obligation for everyone who was there. And Jesus steps up to the plate and says, I'll, I'll meet the obligation. With heart, soul, mind, and strength, I'll meet the obligation, even though I'm not obligated to, because I don't need it. Isn't it good? Man. This, this, is, this is, by the way, what, what, what will get me through. The, the, you know, I, I love it that we do other things in life. I love that God has made us emotional beings and we can have high points emotionally. But I also know just around the corner and as easily as it came or quicklier than it came, I might have the plug pulled. And life is dark and hard and sometimes it's dark and hard because of my sin. It's not going to carry the day. The emotion isn't going to carry the day. But what's going to carry the day ultimately is the reality that Jesus said, baptize me and do it to fulfill all righteousness. I need his righteousness and it's mine by faith, by trusting in him. I know that I'm secure in him. I love Christ for doing this on our behalf. Now let's look at the genealogy. Okay, this is going to be an exercise in how many words Pat cannot pronounce well quickly. Okay, I'm going to cut to the chase and, and give you the punchline before we actually start. I think the punchline and the reason uh, Luke is doing what he's doing in Luke chapter 3 verses 23 to 38 is to emphasize, to emphasize the humanity of Jesus, the Adamness of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. It's important that he gives the genealogy to show that Jesus is a legitimate, real human being with a real family tree. It's also important to, to show some of the key figures like David, like Abraham and others. But primarily, that's not what Luke is emphasizing in his description of the, uh, of the genealogy. Matthew uses it for quite a different purpose, I think. Some similar purposes, but, but, but also different purpose. I think the primary emphasis here comes at the very end because he's going to trace it all the way back to Adam because we need Jesus to be a human. We need him to be, to use Paul's words, the last Adam. So let's go ahead and uh, let's work, work our way through it. And uh, beginning in verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. We know that because of virgin birth issues. The son of Heli, the son of Moffat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semain, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melki, the son of Adi, the son of Kasim, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, and the son of Jonam, the son of Elakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of 
Nishan, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shalah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I, along with others, think think it's all strategic, especially strategic at the end. He's the divine son. The father says, he's my son in whom I'm well pleased. Extraordinarily so. No debates about that. Divine sonship. And now the end here goes all the way back to Adam, who's a different kind of son of God. The one God created with his own creative powers. It's important that Jesus be a human Because we need a human to fulfill all righteousness. Because, sorry for the obvious, we're humans. And we're born under the law as Jesus is born under the law. Not only that, that's the crucial thing. It is extraordinary to emphasize the fact that he is son of Adam because now we realize that Jesus, Luke loves to do this, Jesus isn't only the Savior of the Jews... He's a savior of the Gentiles because this doesn't just go back to Israel. This goes before Israel. It goes back all the way to the very beginning to Adam. And so we have the, the savior who's the universal savior, not just the Jewish savior. He's the savior of all who would ever believe. He's the savior of the world. He's the savior of the world. He's the representative we need. He's the vicar that we need. He's the son of Adam. He's the son of God. Like what R.C. Sproul said about this when he said, Jesus is the new Adam. He's borrowing from 1 Corinthians 15. The author of the new humanity, the one who comes to redeem and reconcile men from every tribe and nation, not merely giving himself as a ransom for the lost sheep of Israel, but pouring out himself as a substitute for the sinful children of Adam's race. And we're going to pick up on this more too as we move into chapter 4. Because chapter 4 is the temptation of Jesus by the devil. Two ways for you to read that. You're going to read that as, oh, isn't this nice that Jesus provides an example of how we can overcome temptation? And I think we should observe that. But if that's the only way you read it, if that's the primary way you read it, I just want to encourage you to think bigger and to think better and to think more broadly in a biblical sense. He's just been called son of Adam. And then, no chapter divisions in the original, we move right into the temptation. Oh, this looks familiar, son of Adam. The first Adam was tempted by the devil and what happened? All hell broke loose is what happened in a figurative sense, and it was awful. We're living proof of it. It's not hopeful for you to go, oh, so let's learn principles here so we can overcome the devil too. You have a sin nature. It's not going to cut it. 
read it in the flow of things and you go, oh, he's the son of Adam. He's the representative and he doesn't succumb to the temptation. He overcomes the temptation. And what is he doing as our vicar? He's doing it for us. So good. It's so gospel. It's so hopeful. It's worthy of our worship of him. I like what one other person said about this, and then we'll conclude. Jesus' vicarious ministry, his, his substitutionary ministry, does not begin at the cross, but at his birth. Remember, fulfill all righteousness? And throughout his life, especially in his ministry, from the baptism and temptation all the way to Gethsemane, and most certainly at the cross. That is helpful. Remember that as you read through the gospel account. Don't just read through the gospel account mining it for timeless truths that apply to all people everywhere at all times. Try harder, do better. It's all applicable in one sense or another. But the gospel accounts tell the good news of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who is our righteousness. He's our hope. It's where our confidence is. Now think in these terms. We heard the Father, we read, but we can hear it in the words, say to the Son from heaven, Behold, my Son in whom I'm well pleased, my beloved Son. Which makes Him stand out from everybody else who's ever lived or ever will live. But now let's talk about application. The Bible teaches that if you're a believer, you're trusting in Christ for His perfect work. The Bible says you're, you're united with Him. It says you're in Him, which means united with Him. He's your representative. And I'm not trying to play games here when I say, therefore, if you are in Christ by faith, it is certainly, certainly true that God says of you, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. Not the exact same kind of son, I understand that, but the Bible definitely teaches that all believers, men and women, are sons because we're heirs. And for God to look at Pat Avendroth, the sinner, and to say, He's one of my sons in whom I'm well pleased. Is everything. Is everything. And that's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means to be united to Christ. And it happens by faith. It happens by faith. That's why we call it good news. Amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. We're just at the beginning of his public ministry. And we're going to go all the way to the end of his public ministry. And we know how it ends. We know what he's up to as he is fulfilling all righteousness. And we know he goes to the cross. And we know he says it is finished. And we know he ascends. And we know he is, he's interceding on our behalf even right now as we're accused by Satan of being sinners. Jesus can say, that's right, they are sinners. And I fulfilled all righteousness. They're mine. 
What a great way for us to remember this, even by doing what the Lord said and by eating and drinking in remembrance of him. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you this morning for this extraordinary opportunity to be reminded that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus is our righteousness, and that his righteousness is given to us by faith. And Lord, please work mightily to remind us today, maybe to, to, to shock us for the first time, perhaps, into to knowing that we're not righteous. We're not law keepers, even though we must be. And yet Jesus loved us so much that he gave himself for us. He did everything required, everything necessary, and he did these things for us so that we might trust in him and be accepted by you. And may that fuel our worship, may it fuel our living and our appropriate living. And even now, as we consider and meditate upon the finished work of Christ, may you receive all the glory and all the praise, and may the people of God be blessed and built up in hope. In Jesus' name, amen.